I'm Lisa Stone, and you're listening to Parenting Aces. Welcome to the Parenting Aces podcast, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I am your host, Lisa Stone, and I'm really thrilled this week to be able to bring you James Leith. James is one of those people that I kind of came across in a roundabout way. He is not specifically in the tennis space, but he definitely has knowledge and experience and information to share with us today that can help us as tennis parents, tennis coaches, and even junior players have a more positive experience as we go through this process of junior tennis development, college recruiting, college tennis, professional tennis, wherever the sport leads you. I want to just let y'all know if you are listening to the podcast on one of your favorite apps, we have the video version on parentingaces.com as well as on our YouTube channel. So if you want to put a face to a voice, check us out there. And I also want to remind you all about our Parenting Aces shop, which is now live and has all sorts of cool logoed merchandise that we'd love for you to consider purchasing and wearing and help us spread the Parenting Aces message to tennis parents everywhere. So that said, let me tell you a little bit about James. James is coming to us from Dallas, Texas. He currently coaches high school football, but don't let that put you off. He definitely has experience and knowledge that is going to help all of us in youth sports. Um, One of James's kind of uh, most popular platforms and how I got to him kind of by way of changing the game project is his Unleash the Athlete uh, website. And James sends out a weekly e-newsletter and I get that. And almost every newsletter has something in it about being a better sports parent. And so I reached out to him to see if he would do the podcast. And thankfully he said, yes, I didn't scare him off too much, but just to let y'all know, James has a bachelor's degree in communications and has a master's degree in performance psychology. So we're going to be talking about the mental side of things today. That's our focus. So without further ado, let me bring James on. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. James is leaning over. (laughs) Hey, James. I had to clear my throat real quick. (laughs) I was like, oh, no, I'm up. (laughs) You're up, you're up. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule. And um, we're just thrilled to have you. Well, thank you for having me. It's, uh, It's an honor. I appreciate the introduction. Well, sure. So as I mentioned, you come from the football world, not the tennis world, but you also come from the sports psychology realm. And that's kind of going to be our focus today. And your whole platform around Unleash the Athlete. Can you talk a little bit about what your impetus was to develop that platform? What problem you were trying to solve and how tennis parents and tennis coaches can utilize the information that you've put online? Yeah, well, I I just recently was a football coach, um, but I I kind of rotate through different sports just to kind of stay in the trenches. Uh, When I was a kid, I wanted to be a coach. I, I always admired my coaches. My father was off kind of doing his own thing. So I was raised by these great men and women that just had one name, coach. And I, I never got to play tennis in high school. Uh, it conflicted with some of the other sports I was playing, but I was always really interested in just the, the whole mental aspect of you versus another person and then one little ball. So I have high respect for, for, uh, for tennis. And uh, I came up with Unleash the Athlete because it was, for me, there were things when I was growing up through athletics that I wish I would have known sooner. Things that I didn't realize were actually a body of work, like the idea of sports psychology. I had no idea that those two words went together. I loved psychology. I I was interested in all the things that made people tick and made people make decisions. 
But it wasn't until my late 20s until I, I saw those two words together, sport and psychology. And it really just kind of blew me away because I read through this job description. I think it was for the, uh, the Chicago White Sox. And I thought, this is amazing. I, I, want, I want to know more about this. So I actually went to, back to school and got my master's in performance psychology, like you said. And I just love the idea that these weren't new ideas, but they were new to me. And I started applying them right away to my coaching and helping other coaches. And uh, But I, I really started in my, my mid-20s when I had already been coaching for a few years and I took a break. Uh, about a year off and I just read and I watched documentaries and I just, I really got into the, the, the psychology of what it is to be a great coach. And while I was doing that, a friend of mine was like, Hey, come and audit my practice. My football players are quitting and I can't, I can't figure Ooh. out why they're leaving. <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, I think I could do that. And he was like, Hey, I'll pay you $500. And I was like, Whoa, uh, Yeah. You know, I, and then I, of course I'm like, you know, I usually don't take that small of a fee, but you know, I'll do it for $500. I had no idea what I was doing, but he invited me out and he was, you know, 20 years older than me, but he wanted my perspective. And I never even thought that that would be a thing, but I went to practice and it wasn't five minutes, Lisa, before I knew exactly what was wrong. A kid came up to him and they had only had their helmets on for a week and he was grabbing his neck and he was like, coach, my neck hurts. And the coach looked at him and goes, yeah, me too. And does this. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like this kid's reaching out. And uh, he just said, Hey, go ahead and sit down. And when you're it really a lot of contempt in his voice, go sit down. And when it's not hurting anymore, come join us. And then he, the kid walks away and, and this coach looks at me. He was like, all right, sports psych, you know what? <laughs> What do you got with that? And I was like, that was horrendous. First of all, that kid will never trust you again. Secondly, he's probably going to quit in maybe no, no more than two weeks. He'll, he'll, he'll be quitting. Mm -hmm. Well, then I saw how the assistant coaches were talking to the players mm -hmm. and it was the exact same way. And so where I thought it was because this was a coastal school, you could see the beach from the football field. I'm like, that's gotta be a reason. No, it was the way the coaches were talking to the players. The players didn't feel seen. Just like in that movie Avatar, right? When they don't say, they don't say, I, I love you. They say, I see you. Mm -hmm. And kids just want to be seen. And this coach missed out on that. And so he texted me two weeks later. He was like, you're right. He quit. And then he brought me back out. He was like, we need some education. And so I thought, okay, well, now here's an opportunity to teach all the things that I've been learning. And then that just kept happening. I kept getting inviting to, to different sports, uh, wrestling and tennis and golf and basketball and I just became this, this, I, I had this opportunity to just watch all these coaches and, and how they ran practice. And I saw good ones and I saw bad ones, but I also kept coaching. And over time, it just became kind of a thing where I created Unleash the Athlete uh, while I was, um, you know, getting my master's. And then I got to spend time at IMG Academy. Mm. And when I got to IMG and, you know, Nick Bolletieri and and that whole world, I was introduced to an excellence way of living as an athlete. This idea that every day, if you want to get better, you have to be intentional and that success leaves clues. And if you are interested, if you're available, if you're curious, then these clues will reveal themselves to you when it's appropriate. And so I took up all these clues from when I was at IMG and when I was working with uh, other professional teams and other professional athletes and just started throwing them out there. But the thing about the coach note that you talked about earlier is I'm still coaching. And so I'm not removed from the idea that I have a whistle or that I plan practice. And so any of these anecdotes, working with parents, mm -hmm. working with athletes and coaches, I just put them into these short coach notes you know, once or twice a week trying to help people out because I wish I would have known these things sooner. And so as soon as I right. can get them to anybody else and, and I don't know what I'm talking about, but the people that I talk about know what they're talking about, hopefully. <laughs> and so and then I just share it with y'all. You know what you're talking about because you've experienced this stuff as I've a coach there, yourself, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what I think is so interesting is that a coach would reach out to you like they obviously know something's going on. They reach out to you to come observe practice. You witness this behavior that's appalling, mm -hmm. right? And yet the coach doesn't 
even see it even after you've, you know, kind of shined a light on it. Yeah. But yet that coach is trying to be better. So mm-hmm. I to me, my takeaway from that story is this is a process. This isn't something you wake up and make a decision that, hey, I'm going to be so much better than I ever was starting right now. And I'm never going to make another mistake again. Right. That's not how it works. We, Mm -hmm. we commit to change. We open our minds to being educated and taking suggestions from people who are, you know, experts in the field. And then we have to allow for time to, kind of start to make these things habit, start to embrace the suggestions that come our way, start to open our minds more to recognizing when we're saying something or doing something that's not in the best interest of the players that we're there to support. Right. So it's not a magic bullet. The same with, with players. I mean, you can Mm -hmm. send your child to a sports psychologist, send them to a, a mental skills training program but it's not going to just boom, fix itself. It, it is a process. Yeah. You, you know, change happens in an instant, but it starts in the mind. It's like you, you get a seed and you decide, right? That the, the word decide literally means to cut away. So you decide no more. I'm making changes. And you put that seed in the ground. Sometimes it takes a long time for that seed to grow into a, a plant where you see the flowers and the, and the fruit from that. But then other times, like a bamboo, like the bamboo, it's this hard nut. You put it in the ground. You have to water it for five years. And then after five years, it grows 90 feet. So sometimes it takes over the world. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you build boats out of it. You don't build boats out of weeds, you know? And so, you know, when you decide something, when you decide to make a a change, that decision, boom, it's in an instant. But the fruits of that decision take time and you have to continue to do that. And this coach, uh, we're, we we're friends. And so I see him on Facebook and I don't live in California anymore, but I've seen him change over time. And the, I saw him change the way he coached, but then I also saw it influence the way he parented his, his daughters. Interesting. And so, you know, what, I, when I'm talking to parents, oftentimes they'll be like, okay, well tell me about your experience with your kids. I'm like, I don't have any kids. I'm like, well, you don't know what you're talking about. Okay. Maybe. Also, I've been working in this realm for 20 years. So you see patterns, you see Mm -hmm. things that work and things that don't work. And kids haven't changed. It's just their environment has changed. And, you know, children, they want to be seen. They, they also want to break because they want to be kids. And so what I find with a lot of parents and a lot of coaches is that they're looking at their child as a mini adult. The sooner I can teach, I can treat them as an adult, the sooner they'll be an adult. And then they spend the rest of their lives wishing that the innocence of the child could come back because, you know, they, they yeah. force the kid to grow up. And at the end of the day, this kid just wanted to be a, a child, but there was so much demand and so much expectations put on them. And that fosters a lifetime of uh, this really disharmony a relationship between the parent and the child. And I don't need to have kids to know that. You know, I, I did foster for a while and that was an amazing experience, but I think that at the, at the end of the day, parents need to understand that, um, their kids, um, are, are more than just one day getting a scholarship or one day being a pro. It's like, because a very small amount of people ever get to have that label, but everybody gets to be an adult. And so we use sports to teach, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. We use sports as a, as a microcosm of what life is going to be like, you know, that, that head coach you didn't like someday becomes your boss, right? (laughs) The the teammate that you had a beef with is now your coworker. And so you have to learn to do that. And so no matter what sport you're in, these lessons that we learn translate into life out Mm -hmm. in the quote unquote real world. And we talk about that a lot on Parenting Aces, the life lessons that tennis teaches our kids. And, uh-huh. you know, I'm a huge proponent of even with like the recruiting process that the kids drive that process. They own that process. Mm-hmm. You know, it, there are all sorts of recruiting agencies out there and and I partner with some of them and they do great work. But at the end of the day, this is a learning opportunity for your child. Right. And for them to gain skills and 
um, and other, you know, decision making that right. is going to serve them into adulthood. Um, I feel like with a lot of coaches, the communication piece is the piece that's often missing. They, they either have great communication skills with the parents and not so great with their players or vice versa, or sometimes neither, right? Sometimes their communication skills just stink all around. And I thought it was so interesting that your undergraduate degree is in communications, and then you went into coaching, and then you went into this performance psychology specialty, all of which require really good communication skills in order to find success. Can you kind of talk a little bit about your own journey with developing your communication skills with your players, with other parents that you're dealing with, the parents of your players, and with other coaches that you're now interacting with through Unleash the Athlete and, yeah. and your work? Yeah. Well, when I was in high school, I had a math teacher that was just horrible. She didn't like kids. She didn't like her job and she was really mean. And I can say that with um, absolute certainty because I went back and taught at that high school and she was exactly the same. Oh, <laughs> no. was, it wasn't a, a gag or anything. It was just, she was just not, she didn't like life. And so I failed algebra twice. And then uh -oh. my senior year I took it and I passed it. And my, my teacher slash coach in that senior class I walked in and I said, coach, uh, you know, I'm not good at math. And he was like, really? And I go, yeah, you know, this other teacher, I don't want to say her name, but this other teacher, she's, yeah, she told me that I'm not, I'm not good. And so he had me go up to the board and he was like, I want you to write a formula down for me. And I was like, all right, here we go. Another F in my future. And so I wrote, he goes, uh, Y. And I wrote down a Y. He goes, E. And I wrote down E. And he goes, T. And I wrote down the T. And I'm waiting for the next one. He's like, that's it. And I was like, yet? He goes, yeah, you're not good yet. You just don't have the right understanding of math. It's like you're going to pass because you're smart and you're going to figure it out. It's all problem solving. You're an athlete. Like you've problem solved. I got a B in that class. Wow. And I earned it. He was not one to give away grades. But all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, my gosh, things are clicking. Things are clicking because all of a sudden, growth mindset is introduced to me as a senior in high school. Mm. When before I was told and, and you know, we were told as kids, like, you know, you're just not good at stuff. And now we know that's total malarkey. So then I get to college. My sophomore year, I'm, I'm getting my, my bachelor's in teaching, in education. I want to be a teacher and a coach. And I walk into my first math class at Fresno <laughs> State. And that teacher is sitting in the classroom and I walked in, no we way. made eye contacts. She gave me like kind of the nod and I gave her the no. And I walked out and I walked over to the administration building. I changed my major. And at the time I was reading a book by John Gruden, who's an NFL football coach called, do you love football? And in there, he says that he got his bachelor's in communication because he believes that life is sales. And everybody, no matter what you're doing, you are always selling something, whether it's a product, an idea, a, a passion of yours, whatever it is. And in his world, he was selling a game plan to his athletes. So I changed communication. And it was one of the best decisions I ever made, especially at that age, because it taught me how to look at rhetoric, whether it's the written word or the spoken word, or even through artistic expression to be able to extract meaning from that. So I spent three, well, I should, I say three years. It took me 10 years to get my bachelor's degree. But that's a whole nother story. <laughs> you know, um, but, all, whoops. but you know, during that time, like I would take a coaching job or I would go, I went and played uh, semi-pro football and I had a job on a cruise ship. It was, there was a lot of stuff that I, I did during that time. But by the time I graduated, my, my favorite communication teacher was like, you got to get your master's. So then I started getting my master's in communication and then it just, it, I was done learning about communication. Mm -hmm. I needed to apply it. So I, I walked away from that program, but communication has been such an important part of my ability to coach. But before communication can be established, relationship has to be established and too many coaches throw out expectations and rules and all these ideas that they want their kid to have. And the kid's like, who is this smuck? 
Like, mm-hmm. you, well, you don't even know who I am. You're telling me that I have to come to practice 14 times a week. Like, I, you don't even, I don't even know you. So there's a quote that I ran across the other day. In fact, I wrote it down. It says, rules without relationship breeds rebellion. Interesting. Rules without relationship breeds rebellion. And it's true because any right. coach that ever gave me a bunch of rules that I didn't respect and hadn't earned their voice in my heart, I rebelled against. And so, uh, I, and I have this whole, this presentation is called intentional coaching where it, it talks about how to intentionally grow your influence and, you know, relationship is part of it, being authentic, uh, being consistent. You know, there's all these things that you can do to increase your relationship, but it all came to a head when there was one situation, I was at IMG Academy and there was a soccer player and she was one of my favorites. You're not supposed to have favorites. We all have favorites. Let's be real. Yeah. And so she kicked the ball and missed the goal by like 10 feet. And I was just like, Tate, you're terrible. (laughs) And she like whipped her head around to to yell at whoever was talking trash to her and saw that it was me and the scowl on her face changed to a smile and she waved and I waved at her and then she kicked it and it nailed it right into the net and it was awesome. The reason why I could say that, you can't say that to every athlete, but she had been in my leadership class. She had laughed at my stupid jokes. And we had this rapport of coach to athlete, you know, this appropriate, respectful, two-way engagement relationship. And I was able to say that. I could not have said that and got the same res- – I could have got fired if it was someone right. that I didn't have a, a, you know, a good uh, working relationship with. And so it, it's in those moments where you realize how important it is to have a great – um, athlete strategy book, but you also need a player strategy book. Mm-hmm. How, how can you best reach your athletes? And I teach coaches that I, in my workshops that at the beginning of the season, you have individual meetings with each player. If you can, sometimes teams are too big, but you bring the player in and you have a numbered system on the board, one through 10. And you say, okay, listen, uh, Sarah, Sarah, how do you want me to coach you? One is I'm barely making any noise, very soft, it's whispers, encouragement. And 10 is you think I'm going to throw a chair at your face. Like, (laughs) where do you want me to coach you? Mm -hmm. And they'll tell you, they'll walk up and they'll make an X on, you know, four. And you're like, okay, cool. Here's my commitment. When we're working one-on-one, that's how I'm going to coach you until you ask me to go one way or the other. But when we're in a team, I want you to know that I'm at a seven. This is how I coach the team. But when I coach you, I'm going to do my best to coach you the way. And, and now kids are always evolving. Mm-hmm. And so you give that athlete permission to come back and go, hey, you know what? It's a little soft. I need a little bit more edge. Done. Because as a good coach, if you're a good coach, you understand uh, emotional resiliency and you understand how to turn it up and then turn it back down. Yeah. If, you're, if you're all one level at all times with everybody, you're doing the kids a disservice because you, you can't just paintbrush over the kids a, a style of coaching that all you, that's all you have because that's how you were coached. Right. Times are different. When I was in eighth grade, a coach could yell at me and tell me what to do and threaten me. And I'd be like, yes, sir. You got it, ma'am. Whatever you want me to do. Now kids would just be like, I'm going home to play Call of Duty. I don't need this. And then they just leave. And so we do have to be aware that kids have uh, a little bit more of uh, um, they, they have more power to question. Like, why are you talking to me that way? Whereas you and I, like when we were younger, we didn't. It's just we right. did whatever the coach said. Right. Do you find that there are coaches who say, you know, I don't buy that. I'm the coach. Just by the very virtue of the fact that I'm the coach, I mm-hmm. command respect. And if a player chooses not to give me that respect, they can leave. They're out of here. Yeah. Yeah. Those those coaches are usually older or just starting out. Or they have an abundance of incoming athletes Hmm. and they just weed people out Hmm. and you lose potentially great athletes because the coach has an ego problem and the name on the door is more important than the name that walks through the door. Interesting. That's pretty good. I got to write that down. Yeah, you do. That is good. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I want to just say though, that, you know, there are a lot of people out there 
that are going to be listening to this that say, ah, you know, this is fluff. Like, how do you create an elite athlete when, when all you're worried about is their feelings and, you know, whether they feel respected or heard or seen? I mean, I, I'm with you. I am of the mindset that there has to be two-way respect in order for anybody to get through to another person. That, to me, is the base of good communication is mutual respect. Mm-hmm. But not everybody agrees with me on that. So how yeah. do you, what would you say to those people? It is fluff. It's, it's, it's hard to you know, be emotionally respectful to the individual athlete. It's hard. And it's much easier just to be like, shut up, get on the line. I'm not, ta- I'm not, I'm not talking to you. It's much easier to be like, yeah, my neck hurts too. Go sit down and your helmet's heavy. It's very mm-hmm. easy to do that. And you can do that for as long as the athletic director will allow that. Or as long as the parents will allow that. But that's why I instruct coaches to ask the athlete, where do you want to be coached? Mm-hmm. Cause you'd be surprised. Some athletes are like nine. I need to think that you're going to punch me in order to listen. And when I was in high school, it was the same thing. And I learned this from a guy named Steve Cordell. He was the uh, receivers coach at Central High School in Fresno, California. And I was a senior and this big old tight end caught the ball and he was coming right at me with reckless abandon. He wanted to, he wanted to hurt me. I was dating his sister at the time. So that was something. (laughs) But he came at me and I moved out of the way because self-preservation, you know, I want to live another day. So he, and then I move and I kind of trip him. So he didn't score, but I heard my coach, coach Cordell on the sideline, just screaming my name and my, my substitute was coming in and I had to go out. And then at that moment, when you get taken out, you got to stand by your coach. So I'm standing next to him and he's fuming, but Mm. he doesn't say a word. And so a play goes by and I'm standing there. Another play goes by. So then I start to walk away and he grabs my face mask and pulls it back. And doesn't say anything. I'm like, dang it. What is going on? <laughs> the next play, he leans over and goes, I'm very disappointed. I saw you did that on purpose. Don't do it again. And I was like, okay. He goes, get back in there. So I went back in there. Now, the rest of the story, the quarterback saw me, looked at the tight end, tapped his helmet. So I knew they were doing the exact same play. He, the tight end even smiled at me. And it was in that moment, I was just like, all right, well, I'm – going to go to the hospital because I'm going to hit this guy with everything I had because Cordell believes in me. He gave me a second shot. So anyways, the guy catches the ball. I hit him with everything I had. Now it doesn't happen all the time, but he fumbled. We picked it up, scored a touchdown. So his immediate, you know, victory. Here's the point. I was playing strong safety. The safety was Demetric. If Demetric would have came to the sideline and coach Cordell talked to him like that. Demetri could have been like, I don't even know what the problem is. Like, what? It, yeah, can you tell me what I did wrong? Like what? You know, I need to be yelled at. But Cordell knew that I hadn't been yelled at and I would have shut down. Mm. So I go back to coach at that school and I ask him about that situation. He goes, yeah, it's very important to coach kids the way they need to be coached in order to get the most out of them. And I knew that you would shut down. Now in college, I learned to get yelled at. You have to, or you lose your spot. But I was a little bit older. I was 18, 19 years old. And so I don't think it's too much to ask for a coach to go out of his or her own way to find out how can I get the most out of this athlete? It's not about my coaching style. It's about what can I do to get that athlete to see their potential and to strive for it. Yeah, I love that. And I, I think you're right. I mean, it should be the job of the coach. I don't think every coach views that as part of their job. And certainly it requires a lot more work. Um, It requires a lot more thought and intention, right, to figure out for each player that you work with, what is their ideal interaction with the coach. But the payoff is enormous when you do put in the work. Not only I would think for the coach, and I've never coached, so I'm going to trust you on this, but I would think as a coach, seeing that effort that you've put in pay off in terms of your players on the field or on the court performance, but also in their off the field, off the court performance and interaction with their peers, with other adults, et cetera, that's got to feel great to know that you've had that influence over them. But also, I would think 
now this sets the stage also for for segueing into communicating with the parents of the players that you're working with, Mm -hmm. because we as adults all have different ways that we interact as well. So how do you parlay what you learn about the player and the way they want to be coached into your communications with the parents of the player? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, so there's two, if a coach coaches for 20 years, there's two types of coaches. There's a coach that did the same coaching for 20 years or the coach that built on his or her coaching over 20 years. You know, mm-hmm. 20 years experience is different than one year, 20 times. Right. And so as you make mistakes and, you know, miscommunicate with the parents or don't communicate with the parents, hopefully you're learning how to set up the expectations at the beginning of the season. For me, I over communicate to the parents and especially in the beginning to let them know here is what you can expect from me. But I also set up boundaries for an example. I'll never speak to a a parent outside of assessing like an injury or something that happened during the competition, but I won't talk for 24 hours. That's a cool off period. Okay. Because you, you can't see things objectively because it's your child. And so as a coach, I always need to remember that the child is the center of the parent's universe, but the team is the center of my universe. And the parent needs to know that, that I'm making decisions not against your kid, but I'm making it for the team. And if I'm in a high stakes position where I have to win, some people aren't going to play. If I'm in a low stakes position where if I I go, oh, for the century and I still have my job, everybody gets to play, right? Because then I don't have to move my family, right. you know? So I think you have to recognize what level is your, your student athlete at and what are the expectations and stop throwing coaches under the bus because we don't have a lot of other coaches to go from, you know, if you're just like, okay, fire the coach. She's terrible. You know, he said this, let's get rid of him. It's like, okay, maybe that's the right job or right thing to do, but maybe that you're just going to leave room for someone who's worse, Mm -hmm. someone who has less experience. And so I think that with coaches, one of the most important things to remember is that if you over communicate with the parents and you are intentional about your communication with them, the parents will have your back moving forward in the season when something goes wrong. They will change their default to coach is an idiot to coach has a lot going on. And so I'm just going to shoot him a text, let him know this situation. And I know he'll get back to me or, Mm -hmm. you know, she'll, she'll respond within 24 hours or something. And so it's important to set up those expectations sooner than later, because once the season starts, if you change your level of communication, people get nervous you get nervous. Right. About it. it's, like, it's like when I get a phone call and they're like, Hey, uh, we're about to go to playoffs. Can you come work with the team? I'm like, no, don't change anything. You made it this far. I'm, if I change anything and you lose, it's my fault. If I change anything and you win, then, you know, I don't get the credit for it. Right. So no, I won't come. <laughs> I usually say yes anyways, but I, I let them know. I say, look, if you change a lot, that's going to cause a lot of disharmony and, and screw up the homeostasis of the team. Mm-hmm. So that's when it, when it comes to parent communication and, and getting parents involved, you got to find ways as a coach to get parents involved. If it's a team sport, if you can play against the parents, mm-hmm. some fun game, if the parents can, can be a part of setting up stuff, I mean, give them something to do. And it's just like me when I was a fourth grader and the teacher was like, Hey, Jimmy, you want to be the chalkboard monitor? And I'm like, yeah. And so she got me to do manual labor and I felt like I was part of the class. So I stopped causing so much problems, you know? So, you know, you're never going to get away from parents that are causing a ton of problems. They have their own internal battles, but most of the parents just want to be a part of it. Just want to see their, see their kids succeed. And so if you can set up things for them to feel like their child is succeeding, then you're going to be, you're going to be in good hands. Tennis is so unique because, I mean, there are other individual sports, golf, swimming, track and field. Um, But in tennis, from the time a kid picks up the sport till whenever, you know, till they're 80, it's really just the player and their opponent and, like you said, the ball out there. And 
as a parent, when you are in a sport like tennis, where so much pressure is on the individual player to perform well, mm-hmm. or they lose, um, you you start to feel as the parent that I have to do more. I have to give my kid a leg up. I have to, you know, I have to make sure we're we're doing everything possible to set the kid up for success. And oftentimes that leads to overstressing about things like, you know, practicing three hours a day versus two hours a day, things like homeschooling versus going to brick and mortar school when we're not in a pandemic. Um, Things like, you know, hiring a mental skills coach, hiring a fitness coach, hiring a footwork coach. Um, And who suffers in the end typically is the player, the child, because they start to feel all this pressure because mom and dad are spending so much time and money on my sport that if I don't win, I'm letting them down. Mm-hmm. What do you say to parents that that come back at you and say, look, I just, I, I just want what's best for my kid. How do you help parents understand that sometimes doing all of these extraneous things aren't necessarily in the best interest of the player. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm smart enough to know never to tell a mom or dad how to parent their child. (laughs) Smart man. So I do know that, but I can tell you some things that have worked in the past for other parents. And um, I also know that if a child wants to play the sport, you don't have to force them to play. You don't have to force them to practice. Uh, I heard uh, Ray Lewis a few, like two years ago, somebody asked him, um, how do you, how do you like your kids? How do you make them want to be great? Like their dad and, and be in the hall of fame. And he just laughed. He's like, you can't make your kids do anything. <laughs> like They either want it or they don't. When Wayne Gretzky begged his mom to stay with the lights on 10 minutes after practice, so we could get a little bit more ice time. She didn't mm-hmm. have to force him to do that. So, you have to, as a, as a parent, you have to just be impartial to what you want for them when it comes to something that they don't really know if they want to do. And I, I can tell you this, my experience with, with my dad is when I got cut from football or when I got cut from baseball, he had the same response. I remember walking up to the Jeep and I'm like, Hey dad, uh, it's time to go home. And he's like, where's your gear? This is football. And I was like, it's in the shed. He's like, did you make the team? I said, no. He goes, did you have fun? I said, yeah. He goes, do you want to do it again next year? I said, yeah. He goes, okay, let's go get ice cream. So we went and got ice cream and we didn't talk about it anymore. He didn't hire a tutor or, you know, bring in a football specialist, nothing. He just, he's like, all right. So then the next year, same thing. I walk over to the Jeep, except this time I'm wearing the gear. And he was like, why do you have the gear on? And I was like, well, it's, it's mine. He goes, did you make the team? I go, yeah. He goes, are you having fun? I said, yeah. And he goes, after practice? And then he just waited and I go, ice cream? And he goes, yep. (laughs) And we went and got ice cream. And it was in that moment where I learned that I did not have to perform for my father to love me. Mm -hmm. And when you say tennis is only the, the, the player, the opponent, and the ball, that's wrong. It's the voices in the player's head that is as real as anything else. It's if I miss this shot, my dad's going to lecture me for 45 minutes on the way home. If I don't return this backhand perfectly, my coach is going to break his clipboard over his knee because he's so mad. There's all these other voices in the, in the, this, the, the head of the child, which is why my company is called Unleash the Athlete. Shut up. Let them play, right? Like just let them do their thing. Let them fail and let them stew in the back of the suburban with all the failures from the from the court. And when they want to, they'll be like, mom, you remember that second set? What happened in that? And now all of a sudden you can, you can talk, but keep it mm-hmm. short. Because if you get in that car and the first thing you do is like, let's talk about why you lost, that you've just become an enemy of the kid for the rest of the night. Mm-hmm. They don't want to talk about it. And when they win, they also don't want to talk about it. They want to go celebrate. Like, let's go get ice cream, you know, like let's go hang out with friends. And so um, we have to remember that these kids are not getting paid to perform. They are in training 
to one day possibly move up if they want to, if they're good enough and if they're lucky, because it takes a lot of luck to make it. And, you know, again, being at an IMG in the Baltari Academy and, and learning about tennis players that went through there, you have tennis parents that were ride or die. You're doing this every day. This is your life. And the parents would be like, okay, I guess if you want to do that, both have risen to the top. So mm-hmm. both ways are good. The difference is how much do you want your child to resent you? How much do you want your child yeah. to not appreciate everything that you did for them for 18 years and all the money you spent and all the weekends you gave up and the trips you didn't go on just to get to college and go, I don't want to play tennis anymore. It's not fun. Yeah. And it happens all the time, right? I mean, with that every is sport. With, with every, every sport. sport. Sure. Sure. And I listen, I am, you know, my family's a prime example of that. My son played two years in college and then said, I'm done. I've, I've, I've had enough of this um, and quit and hadn't picked up a racket since. But that said, thankfully our relationship is intact, not just intact, it's thriving. Um, We have a great relationship and it was his decision, right? He came to that on his own. It wasn't, you know, my parents, this, my parents, that it was, you know, I've had enough. I'm not happy. I'm no longer happy doing this. And so I'm not going to do it anymore. And interestingly, I stay in contact and as does he um, with his college coach, his last college coach and all the Whenever they have a conversation or where the the coach and I have a conversation, it's all about, is my son feeling joy? You know, that's all this coach ever cared about. Like, you know, he'll talk to him on the phone and then he'll text me. Yeah, talk to Morgan. Um, It was so great to hear the joy in his voice, you know, and I just I mean, to me, that's that's what a great coach is. Um, Sadly, for what a great parent is, too, though. Well, I just, you know, I just, I see joy in you. Like, I'm so happy for you. Yeah. Sadly, this guy's no longer coaching college tennis, but he's still around and, and we stay in touch. So let's go back to Unleash the Athlete. And, and okay. I want to really kind of focus on that a little bit. What is kind of the philosophy behind Unleash the Athlete? At its bare bones, it's the things that I wish I would have known when I was an athlete. That's when it comes to athlete education, when it comes to coach development, it's trial and error of me trying things, failing, succeeding, watching other coaches fail and succeed, and then putting it into bite-sized chunks. Because I realized that if you're, say you're a high school coach and you're a teacher and you have a marriage and you have kids You don't really have time to do the research, to read the scientific journals, to go to conferences and to meet with coaches and, you know, spend time in Jamaica with the soccer team or like you don't have time to do that kind of stuff. I do. I don't I'm not married. I don't have my children of my own, even though I have kids staying here all the time. Like, you know, I I I have the time to do that. And so I create these courses, these these workbooks, these um, lit, like I have things on my website, at utathlete.com, um, books that I give to athletes, you know, the best books for athletes to read. Um, I surveyed 200 coaches and asked them what books should coaches read. And they gave me 120 books and I ordered them in, um, most popular to least popular. And then just started going through that list for the books that I hadn't read, you know, and, and I spend time one-on-one with coaches in, uh, like 30 minute sessions over, Sometimes it's six weeks, sometimes it's six months, but I have these coaching mentorship where we just bounce ideas off one another. And right before this call, I was talking to a swim coach who was in charge of the club team and the high school team. And her and I were trying to figure out how do we differentiate the expectations between someone who's on the high school team and someone who's on the club team. And it was really simple. In my eyes, it was like, when you're on the high school team, you're there to have fun and compete. When you're on the club team, you're there to compete. That is your goal. And so if you're on the club, you're expected you're expected to do everything that the high school kids are doing, but you've decided that you want more. And so now you're you're doing more. And then also we came up with uh, this uh, this idea of, of a notebook and keeping track of their wins and losses over the season. 
And so it's these little uh, things that I'm able to meet with coaches and just help them have And my goal is have the athlete have a better experience. Mm -hmm. The coach is the adult. Figure out how to fill your cup on your own time. But at the end of the sport experience for the child, I want them to look back and be like, that coach is one of my favorite people ever. They taught me this, this, and this. And I'm going to go off and be great members of my community. I'm going to be a great husband, a great wife, great mom, and great dad. So that's really like unleash the athlete. I use sports to teach life lessons that can be translated into after sport. Yeah. I love that. And I listen for a tennis player. Tennis is a sport of a lifetime, right? My dad's 83 still plays tennis and you know, it's awesome. But that said, there is an end to your competitive tennis journey, whether you know, you can continue playing tournaments, you know, up until your 80s. And and some of the guys that my dad grew up with are still competing around the world. It's crazy. That's but but for most people, their competitive tennis years end either after junior tennis is done at age 18 or after college tennis is done, or maybe they have a short stint on the pro, pro tour and then it's over. Right. But there's a lot of years after that, that mm-hmm. you have to function in the world and be a contributing member of society and hopefully be a great human and be a great spouse or partner and a great parent or mentor or whatever your position in the world is. And for coaches to understand the role they play in shaping the next generation of adults and leaders and in our Mm -hmm. communities, I, I just think it's fantastic. And you know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of coaches having mentors. I've talked to the Intercollegiate Tennis Association about that. They now have this phenomenal mentoring program set up for college tennis coaches to, right. you know, kind of bounce ideas and, and have somebody to check in with on a regular basis, which is huge because it's rare that anybody goes to college and gets an education on how to be the the perfect coach. It's something you learn through experience. It's something you learn through trial and error, through education, outside of formal education. And sadly, there are some coaches out there that, that aren't so great and that really turn our kids off from their sport of choice, whatever that is. But there are others out there like you and the people you work with who are committed to to touching the lives of these athletes and helping them become great adults. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly it. You know, just having athletes turn into great adults because if they make it that far, then we want them to be contributing members of society. Definitely. And to give back, if you have an athlete that was forced to play for years, the chances of them coming back and wanting to give back to their sport are very small. Mm-hmm. You know, it's usually the athletes that had a good time right? Know? and the ones that weren't very good <laughs> because they got to enjoy it. And they're like, I just had right. fun and now I'm going to go coach. And then they had to be in great coaches just because you were a great tennis player doesn't mean you're going to be a great tennis coach. And that's throughout all sports. Yeah. Yeah. And we see that too um, a lot in tennis, especially now we've seen a lot of um, younger people kind of get into coaching, get into actually broadcasting, Mm -hmm. um, podcasting, running websites, all based around tennis where they themselves, you know, were very good tennis players, but they weren't at the tip top of, of their class. And but yet they they finish their competition years with still this love of the sport intact and wanting to yeah. give back, as you said, which I think is really cool. So, James, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? How do they access all your great information? Well, it's kind of you to say uh, jamesleith.com is where I most of my stuff's at. It, you can get to my Unleash the Athlete website there. I also have a podcast called Unleash Your Life which is uh, focused more on just life in general. It's me giving a message with music in the background. And um, those are like seven or eight minutes. So it's not that long. And so, yeah, that, that's it. That, that's where you can find I'm on all the socials at James Leith. I just got into TikTok. Oh, Jared. wow. All right. I hate it. I hate it. 
Because every time I sign on to TikTok, I lose an hour of my life. It's gone. Right? It's most people are so creative, so funny. I'm just like, I don't even have to scroll. It just scrolls for me. It's like, you're done with this one. You know, it's like yeah. Netflix. It just keeps on going. Um, so I, I take little snippets of my podcast and I, I put them on there because I record the video for it too. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to being back on stages and being back in front of teams right now. It's all digital. So yeah. once uh, once the this thing passes and we're able to get back in front of people, uh, I'd love to come out and, and, and talk to coaches if you're interested and talk to athletes. It's just that's my life. That's what I love. And people can reach you through your website. Again, yeah. here's the link, jamesleith.com or at jamesleith on all the socials, including TikTok now. James Leith is TikTok. a yeah. TikTok star. I'm going to have to look you up. I try to stay far away from it. My The rest of my family is all about the TikTok. <laughs> yeah, it's taking over the world. It yeah. is. It's pretty funny. James, thank you so much for taking time to come talk with us. I really appreciate it. I love your work as as I said before, um, for those of you watching or listening to this, if you haven't signed up for James's newsletter or checked out his website, please do so because he just has such a gentle and sane approach to youth sports that I think we can all learn from. It's so easy to get sucked into the business of youth sports and the yeah. chaos and the pressure yeah. and to have your voice out there as kind of the calming influence is really special and really necessary. So thank you for that work. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate you saying that. Sure. To my viewers, to my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. We will catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at ParentingAces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.